Welcome to another episode of the Extra Point Podcast. I am Chris. And I'm Nick. I'm Todd. I'm Carlos. And I'm Travis. And we have quite a crew of biblical scholars here to talk about... No, just, just men. <laughs> oh, that's true. We're, we're <laughs> just scholars, men. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we're going we're gonna to give you some background as we move into the next section of Kings. So we're in the book of 1 Kings, and we've finished up chapter 11, which is a, a turning point in... Israel's history. Solomon passes away, and the kingdom now goes to his son. And what we see in chapter 12 is really the the division of the kingdom that kind of helps us understand the rest of the Old Testament, if we can understand what's going on in this particular chapter. So maybe, Carlos, if you could kind of just um, give us an overview of, of maybe the things that are leading up to what's happening in 1 Kings chapter 12. Yeah, so, I mean, if you want to go back as far as David, he's the first good king of Israel, right? He was faithful to the Lord. He walked uh, according to the Lord's statutes from his heart. Um, Even though he wasn't perfect, he at least repented when he sinned. And then you get Solomon, which we've been in for a few weeks. And uh, we see that Solomon was a very prosperous king that had been given wisdom. But even in the beginning of Solomon's reign, what we've seen is that there's these little compromises that Solomon makes. He is multiplying wives, he's multiplying his gold, and uh, he's multiplying horses, which was forbidden by Deuteronomy 17, what's known as the law of the king. And that law is summarized with the words? Gold, gals, and giddy-up. Gold, gals, and giddy-up. Yeah, Boy, you, you can remember that easily You don't now. multiply gold, gals, or giddy-up. And Solomon does. And then uh, we see the beginning of the Lord's judgment, like he promised Solomon he would bring, and he... Um, raises up enemies against Israel. And uh, in chapter 12 of 1 Kings, this is where we see the kingdom divide primarily because of all the sin and the idolatry that was committed during Solomon's reign. There's a practical reason, though, that um, probably brought about the division, and and that really had to do with the issue of taxation. Um, we can kind of understand that from, a, from a, an American perspective, that... Uh, taxation can drive rebellion, and we saw that in the American Revolution, and that seems to be the root problem here in, in 1 Kings 12, as the, the throne transitions from Solomon to Rehoboam, and the people cry out for relief from the heavy taxation. I mean, Solomon, in order to build everything that he needed to, to build, he put a heavy weight upon the people and specifically, you see that the ten northern tribes who tend to be asking for some kind of tax relief. And Rehoboam, in his um, the, trying to make that decision, how does he go about that, making that decision? Well, he gets counsel initially, I think from a couple of different groups, but doesn't listen to anyone. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, he, remember he, he asks... Uh, First, he asked, like, the elders, the older men, the guys who would have served around Solomon, and he didn't like what they said, you know. And uh, so then he goes to his buddies, the young guys, and then he's kind of like, yeah, I like what you said. And they're kind of like, ah, you know, you're the king now. You wear the pants. Make sure that they understand that and go ahead and tax them as much as you want. That seemed to be kind of the the real loose translation of what they told him in their advice was give it to them. You think about it. I mean, what do people who live on, off the backs of other people, 
I mean, he, they wanted to continue to live that lifestyle. Boy, there's a political commentary. We should just stop right there and talk about that for a long time, that people who live off the backs of other people. Boy, we could get into a lot of issues there. Um, so in this whole time, a, a person rises up named Jeroboam. Who is Jeroboam in this scenario that's being played out here? Well, Jeroboam is a very capable man who basically is employed by Solomon. Um, and he's a leader. He even recognized his, his, his skill is recognized by Solomon, the man of wisdom. So you got to figure like, hey, this is a pretty, pretty uh, capable man. And then um, the Lord sends a prophet to him. If you remember, and we read that in chapter 11 saying, hey, because of Solomon's sin, I'm going to give 10 tribes to you, and you're going to lead 10 tribes, and two will be left for Solomon. Um, Solomon finds out about it, and then Jeroboam hightails it out of there to Egypt until Solomon dies. So here we have the contrast, you know, the, um, basically the rightful heir to the throne of David, who is, is Solomon's son, and then the people's choice, you know, to maybe put it a different way, especially the northern tribes, because they seem to kind of reach out to Jeroboam and and seek him as their uh, vocal point to argue for the, the release of their heavy tax burden. And when that tends to, when that doesn't go well, then the people rally behind him and they they basically divide from the kingdom. And so that's, that's the essence right there of, of how the the divided kingdom begins. Could maybe explain real briefly um, the two pieces of the divided kingdom that will be referenced throughout the rest of the Old Testament. I'll take a part of that, and then maybe Travis and Nick, you guys can speak into that a bit. From a broad perspective, obviously we use the words north and south. So Jerusalem in the south, there's Judah. Um, it becomes known as that. And then Israel becomes kind of the main word used for those in the north, and those are the ten tribes. They're captured first by Syria later. Jerusalem, Judah, that area uh, last a little longer before they're overthrown. But I think those are the two primary words uh, Judah and Israel used for north and south as the rest of the Old Testament unfolds. They had two capitals. Nick, you want to talk about that for a minute or a little bit? You know, Assyria, I mean, uh, Samaria, Jerusalem? Uh, yeah, the, um, Samaria was the capital of Israel and Jerusalem the capital of Judah. And... Uh, um, this, I mean, this will help as we go throughout the entire Bible. Um, you see there's that, that separation of north and south in Jerusalem and Samaria. And later on, that helps us with when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, um, Samaria becomes this place where, um, for Israel, the, the ten tribes that had kind of seceded um, from the nation, had um, they were actually supposed to be like the rightful place of um, of worship, but they became this uh, mixture of um, Samaritans and Jews, and that got all messed up. So when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman in the New Testament, um, that would have been a crazy thing for a man, let alone a Jewish man, to be talking to a Samaritan woman. And so that's it goes all the way back to to this part of the Old Testament. So it's very helpful just as you're looking through the whole entire Bible. And as we, I think as we understand that context, um, 
you begin to see how each of the, the books that will follow, and even within Kings itself, we'll begin to see how the, the attention of the writer tends to go from the southern kingdom to the northern kingdom and back. So you'll have prophets who were called to the northern kingdom, and they would prophesy against that kingdom. But then the next book may be a prophet who was called to the southern kingdom. And so that helps you kind of begin to understand the context as they, as they work through it. And, of course, all over the geographical area, we begin to see the rise and fall of nations, and that impacts the, the history of what we're going to be reading in the New Testament. So, for example, I think Todd mentioned the fall of the northern kingdom came first. Maybe give a little context as to how they were defeated and by whom and the time period that they fell into captivity. So, I mean, here in chapter 12, uh, you know, Jeroboam takes the 10 tribes of the north, excluding Judah and Benjamin. Um, He's their first king. And unfortunately, all the kings that follow after him, none of them, including Jeroboam, are godly. They're all godless. Jeroboam institutes this new, these two places of worship, and his northern border in Dan, and then the southern border in Bethel, which is just north of Jerusalem. And it becomes a stumbling block for all the years of the northern kingdom. Um, and because of that, God uh, fulfills his promise. You do that, I am going to send you into captivity. And then we will see later on in Second Kings, he does uh, just that, and the king of Assyria comes and, and overthrows the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. One of the interesting things I think that's distinct from the southern captivity is, and help me correct me if I'm wrong on this, the northern kingdom was more of an overthrow and they, they got destroyed and they necessarily weren't all taken back to one central place like an exile. They seemed to kind of just be almost dispersed. Is that correct? They just were, or they, were they all taken back somewhere? I, I don't know. I wouldn't say all of them, but, but a lot of them were. I mean, you, you look at, I think it's Second Kings 17, it says that King Shalmaneser, who had overthrown them, it says that he had taken the, the Israelite tribes and resettled them in the areas of Babylon and Assyria, and then he imported Gentiles into their land. So the idea is that now you have a mixture of these Gentiles the Assyrians brought in and the Jews that were left. So maybe that's a better point of distinction is there was no return of just the Jewish people later from this captivity. They just were mingled in with other people. And then that's kind of where we're going to get this idea of these ten tribes are lost now. Right. Which is really not actually accurate, correct? Right. And, and so you hear often about the ten lost tribes of Israel. And in truth, they're, they're not lost. They, they, they disappeared as a unit in 722. But even, you know, today we still have representatives of all the tribes of Israel within the Jewish population. And I think that's, you know, to kind of build off of Nick's point, that helps us understand the racial tension between Jews and Samaritans when we understand that in their defeat, they were basically interbred with, with Gentiles and, and what the Jews would consider to be inferior people. So they were not still purebred Jews in the eyes of the southern kingdom. There's, there's a lot of tension that exists between the northern and the southern kingdom that, that carries throughout their history. And, and it, it's, it's a loose comparison, but we can kind of see that even within our own history as we 
see the, the division that was caused during the Civil War between the North and the South. And, you know, there's, there's a distinct identity that the Confederate states have within American culture even today. And there's tensions that exist between the, what was the old Confederacy and what was the Union. And those things, while there's now maybe good, more good-natured, they obviously aren't leading to war, there's a clear cultural distinction between those of the North in the, in the U.S. and those of the South. And I think when you see the, the tensions being played out in the Old Testament between the Northern and the Southern Kingdom, we see those same tensions that exist, the competitiveness between the two worship centers, which Carlos referenced, the, the sense that both are more right with God than the other, and that they have a greater right to God's blessing upon them than the other. So there's a, there's a lot of interfamily uh, competition and, and tension that's existing from this point forward within the divided kingdom. You know, it's, it's interesting how the result of the national sins of Israel that we see in Solomon's day affects the Jewish people for the rest of their history. I mean, it started here. And it continues even to this day. I mean, the, the, the nation has never been united like it was in the days of Solomon. I mean, and I think there's, you make a good comparison, you know, modern day, you know, present day America. I mean, even some of the, you know, the uh, politically correct things you can and cannot say in regards to race. We don't like that, but that's because of some of our national sins centuries ago. Mm-hmm. And so... We see this pattern in Israel. We see it in other cultures where, you know, you pay the price for your sins. And obviously this is God's chosen people, but there is somewhat of a parallel. Uh, I would, uh, thinking that this goes back even further than Solomon in Israel's history, because you go to the time of, I mean, when they wanted a king in the first place, when yeah. the people fight against, the people push against what God wants from them. There's always division, and there's always, I mean, when God gives people over to the stubbornness of their hearts, there's always going to be division in God's people when that happens. Which, do you think, Travis, what do you, how does that point to Jesus? So, like, here are all these kings, even good ones, and yet they can't seem to keep the kingdom together. How does that, you think, in your opinion, point to, to, to the king of kings who comes later? Israel had their king, God, and that was supposed to be a theocracy, and they were supposed to serve and worship him alone. Um, They always needed somebody to restore the broken relationship with their king, with God. And so the purpose of the kings, I think, ultimately was to prove the insufficiency of any human being, any man. And I think throughout uh, Israel's history, it was to prove to them that, yeah, like we've talked about um, um, several of these men were qualified people. Saul, David, Solomon were all qualified, decent human beings and with, with outstanding character or, or good looks, or, but none of them were sufficient to save them from their sinfulness. And so all these kings ultimately point to their greatest need, which was God solving their sin problem, not a man. Which comes in the form of the God-man Jesus. That's right, absolutely. Mm-hmm. The only one qualified to, to meet that standard. A vocabulary note here, Chris, might be helpful. Carlos mentioned the word Israel, speaking of the whole nation in Solomon's reign. As you get into the prophets, and you mentioned these earlier, um, sometimes they will 
used the same word Israel to refer to the northern ten tribes, and then that same prophet at times may use the word Israel to refer to previous days in which it included all twelve tribes, or even God's heart for his people nationally. So I just want to make sure our readers or listeners to this, but as they read through these passages, you have to really look at your context and and try to understand, discern, is he speaking of the northern kingdom, all of his people, or the previous kingdom under one king? So it can be a little dicey, if I can say it that way, but just read, reread, and understand the context for how the word Israel is sometimes used. Yeah, because you'll hear Israel speaking of God's people, and then you'll hear Judah. And yeah. yeah, sometimes Judah just means the southern kingdom uh, in context, and sometimes Israel just means the north. Sometimes Israel means all of it. Yeah, so that's and context he, will always tell us. He also refers to him as Jacob often. Yeah. So yeah, and then that's like the whole nation because mm-hmm. you're thinking of Jacob. All the twelve sons of yes, Jacob exactly. became the tribes. Mm-hmm. So as we as we kind of look towards. Um, the defeat of the two kingdoms, the, the northern kingdom in 722 and the southern kingdom in 586, what happens then for the remainder of the Old Testament? I mean, kind of walk us through between that Babylonian exile, the, the point where Jerusalem is destroyed, and then the, the beginning of the New Testament where we see Jesus um, being born into what appears to be a united Israel with Jerusalem as the the center of worship and um, a a country that appears to be united for all practical purposes. So kind of walk Mm -hmm. us through maybe from from that fall of Jerusalem in 586 to the point where we we begin to see the New Testament. I'll throw a big rock out there first. Really, the Old Testament historically will end at at the conclusion of like Nehemiah, Esther, Ezra, those books. They walk you through the captivity, and then there's a 70-year time when they're away, and then they're released. They come back, Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, they're in charge of, of rebuilding things. It goes silent at a certain point, 400 years. But what I think helps people is we call this in the New Testament called the ladder of Acts. You fit all the epistles onto the timeline of Acts. I think it's helpful to fit all the prophets that follow the poetic books into the time period of the Chronicles Kings. Because it's not like it's another time period after Nehemiah, Ezra, and Esther. The prophets wrote their books to fit into that time period. So I just understand that that 586 and forward really is describing Israel's history up in that si- those silent years. You guys want some more detail, but don't look at the prophets as another time period. They're within that time frame. Does it prove the endless love of God that he's caring for them and looking after them and he doesn't allow them to just vanquish and... and be gone, the very fact that when Jesus appears on the scene, then the Jews are still a nation, and they still have a meeting place, and they still are worshiping God, does that prove the everlasting, unending love of God for his, his nation, his people? Yeah, think of the Old Testament word for love, the, the covenant love, the loving kindness, the Hebrew word hesed. You're absolutely right, because even during this period, uh, after Solomon, the bad kings, and the divided kingdom, there are these prophets you insert there, Elijah, Elisha. And those guys weren't writing prophets, but they were definitely prophets. And then later on, you get Isaiah, comes in the time of Hezekiah, Jeremiah. He's kind of a in between, almost before exile. I mean, Daniel, Ezekiel, they're in captivity when those prophecies are written. And then you get ones that are written when they come back. You get, uh, you know, we've already talked about Ezra, Nehemiah. Those are kind of historical. The prophet Haggai, Malachi, you know, um, 
these what we call post-after-exile prophets, absolutely they, they show that God still is gracious to his people, even though they've been so unfaithful. Um, but, you know, you talk about the silent years, uh, Todd. Um, that silent period of 400 years from the last writing prophet, which is Malachi, to the next prophet on the scene, which is John the Baptist, it's about 400 years. And during there's a lot of history that goes on within Israel. And you can read of that history in what's known as uh, the apocryphal books, uh, the book of Maccabees the, 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 or the Hasmonean dynasty within, you can read uh, the Jewish historian Josephus. He records a lot of what's going on with Israel and you still see God's interaction with his people, kind of just providential hand, uh, no speaking prophets. Um, so that's why when John the Baptist shows up on the scene, all of a sudden Israel's got another prophet, which they haven't had in 400 years. Which in a most technical sense, one could say that John the Baptist was the last of the Old Covenant prophets. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Even though he's included in the New Testament or the New Covenant writings. Isn't that interesting? And, and think about the, the message that he brought was really that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so if you're looking at that through Jewish eyes, the, the kingdom ceased to exist when the, the fall happened in, in uh, when Jerusalem was conquered, really the kingdom ceased to exist at there that point. There never was a king. Yeah. They, they were vassals of other empires. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, Israel is really just a vassal of the Roman Empire. It's a province within the Roman Empire. The Jews have no political power. They have no authority. So you can see that being played out in their trial with Jesus. I mean, they had no authority to put him to death. They had to go to either Herod, who was the the vassal king under the Romans, or they had to go to Pilate, who was the governor of the district, the Roman governor. Those two men had the political authority and the power within Israel. And so when they hear that the kingdom of God is at hand, what are they thinking? They're thinking Solomon. They're yeah. thinking this David. is this is the man, right? Yeah. This this is the promised Messiah who is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And so that they're looking for a political figure. They were looking for a warrior who was going to come in and defeat the Romans and restore Israel to its glory that they knew from the time of of Solomon. Yeah, it's an interesting point, you know, because the reason they expected that is because a lot of these prophets prophesied that this would happen when the Messiah came. Um, but the part they missed is that it, that it was also prophesied that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer first. And so when they didn't get what they wanted, which was this restored kingdom, that's why a lot of them rejected Christ. And yet we read in our uh, New Testament letters, Peter, Paul, the apostles are saying no, you missed the part where he had to suffer and pay the penalty for our sin. But what they hoped for when he was first there is still yet future. He is going to come and be the conquering king. He is going to, you know, uh, be the king of kings and lord of lords, and all the nations will flock to him, just not yet. I mean, he even said, my kingdom is not of this world himself, and yet they were so glued in on what they had known, and that must be restored now that they missed the Messiah. You're right. That's why Palm Sunday is like a, is it, is it something for us to celebrate or to just look at the heart of humanity because they 
cheered for them and they said Hosanna, which is save now because that shows their expectations. And then a week later, they crucified him. Just one more word on the southern kingdom, Chris. You guys weigh in on this a little bit. We talked about the two um, captivities and how the rest of the Old Testament unfolds. Really, the Old Testament unfolding is a is the narrative of the southern kingdom. So the ten tribes are captured, and they are taken, like Carlos said, back, a number of them. But they're never restored, never brought back. So it's almost as if they dissipate, like you said. But the Old Testament records the return of the southern kingdom, and those are the exiles mentioned. So as you read through that, the reader needs to be aware he is really speaking to those tribes of Judah and Benjamin primarily as the Old Testament concludes. Correction or, or even edits I on that? I think primarily, yeah, that's the, the sense. I mean, the only way that the, some of the northern tribes would have survived is some of them would have remained in the land, but they mixed with the Samaritans. Um, the, I, don't, I don't believe the scripture records, was just kind of glancing quickly, specific tribes like the ones who had been exported into the area where later Judah would show up. We don't even know if they remained purely Jewish until then. But um, we do so when we get into Revelation, the listing of the specific tribes. Yeah, and so there is some... Representatives yeah. from Amen. every one of those, and unless those are Jehovah Witnesses. I forget, are they... No. No, they're not Jehovah Witnesses. Okay, good. That was a joke, folks. But the, Travis you know, just fell on the floor with a heart attack right there. It. So, so Judah, we know, specifically comes back, Benjamin, and also uh, Levites come back. Those are mentioned, too. And Nehemiah records much of this. Right. Nehemiah, Ezra. So yeah. you can kind of get the sense that they're, they're tracking this southern kingdom's return because they were officially released, whereas the t- ten northern tribes were just kind of continued to mix in that region. So just some historical notes there as they read through the rest of the Old Testament. So I hope this has all been uh, beneficial and, and kind of taken a – a 50,000 perspective, foot perspective of the Old Testament, and really to understand that um, where we are right now in 1 Kings 12 is, is the dividing point. This is, this is where the road kind of splits and goes off in two different directions. And from this point forward, you're going to see a lot of references to the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, Israel, Judah, and the kings and the prophets who were called to those different um, entities and they they truly are different entities and yet they God viewed them as His people and so they were they were still considered the people of God but politically they became two separate entities and this really played out until we get to the New Testament times. Yeah, and I and I just want to you know kind of end on the note that Travis brought up. I mean, the fact that God still remains faithful to His people during these times is all of grace. I mean. Those of us, you know, who have heard, you know, Old Testament is all of law and New Testament's grace. Amen. I mean, that dichotomy is just Amen. not true. Amen. I mean, God is so gracious to his people Israel during these, these times. And you know, Chris, Travis mentioned this verse this morning, but it's verse 15, where it records that this was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. Speaking of that division. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about how God's hand is even in, um, you know, things that in the immediate seem... Um, like they're not good, God is working things that we're not even aware of. Mm-hmm. And I even think about our own situation politically, um, nationally, you know, that the Lord is not uh, handcuffed by our own division. He wasn't then and he's not now. And I know the story is not about us in First Kings, but I just it does bring to, to light God's character and sovereignty. 
I think the 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 parable that's kind of been running through my mind is is the parable of is it the uh, vine keeper that sends his he sends a worker and uh, to to claim what is what is, you know the pro- help me out here the profit of the, the yeah he's going to collect his share of of the crops because it was his land so he sends a worker and they kill that worker and so then he sends another and they kill that one and. He finally says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. They'll respect and listen to him. And so he sends his son to them, and they they reject and kill his son. And I think that, you know, that's the story of, of these two kingdoms. I mean, even though, you know, we, we just studied the, the Queen of Sheba, and we see Jesus referencing that incident in the New Testament when he says, even though there is one greater than Solomon who's standing right in front of you, and and that's a big statement because they revere I mean Solomon was the king over the the time when Israel was the the world power everybody respected Israel so to say there's one that stands in front of you who's even greater than Solomon and you guys don't see it that's an indictment against those people that stings even to this day and so with that we hope this has been beneficial to you and um I will sign off and wish you all a good week this is Chris This is Nick. I'm Todd. I'm Carlos. And Travis. Have a blessed week.